Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Tracy Adams of the University of Auckland and Christine Adams of St. Mary's College of Maryland to talk about their recent book, The Creation of the French Royal Mistress, from Agnes Sorel to Madame de Barry uh, with Penn State University Press in 2020. All right, listeners, this is a very exciting multi-day event uh, based on time zones. It's morning in Baltimore. It's afternoon in Amsterdam. And is it tomorrow in Auckland? Uh, it just become tomorrow. It, it's midnight. Just, just after, no, yeah, just after midnight. That's wonderful. We know the world's not coming to an end tomorrow because we're already in the future. <laughs> um, all right. So the wonders of modern communication technology are sometimes really delightful, right? Um, so how are you this morning and early morning? And how are you two doing? I am fine. I, I um, It's eight o'clock in the morning here for me, so bright and early. And it's a, about a 90 minute commute. So I've been in a car for a while, but but very happy to be here now. So, so settling in and it's a gorgeous day. So. Yeah. Yes, same here. Not not such a gorgeous day as it's raining. And uh, I'm, I'm used to getting up in the middle of the night because you really can't have a career otherwise from this part of the world. If you want to have anything to do with that part of the world, you have to be willing to get up in the middle of the night. <laughs> yeah, I, I am sure that you're used to this. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, so, you know, let's just get into it. My first question, and I think I know the answer to this one, is how you two came to be working together. Um, well, we, we are sisters and we, we work in related fields. Tracy is a specialist in French literature and she focuses on the medieval early modern period. I'm a French historian and my area of expertise is 17th through 19th centuries. And we had been talking a lot about um, doing a project together someday. And the topic that we were originally interested in was beauty. 
and beauty in particular is social capital. And we actually arranged a conference on that topic back in 2013 in the Netherlands, actually, um, at Niest. He had been a fellow at um, at the Netherlands Institute for Advanced Study back in 2011, I think it was. 2011, uh, 12, yeah, yeah. Right, right. and so, so we had, had set up this conference and and in the process of doing that, we realized that we were really interested in how women parlayed beauty into power. And the sort of exemplar of that are, are royal mistresses and how they used beauty, sexual capital um, to wield power. And that's what sort of got us interested in that particular topic. But but we would talk about these on, on long walks and, and conversations. And, and that sort of was the seedbed for the idea, I guess. Yeah. yeah, I just want to throw in that we ultimately decided it wasn't really about, about sexual power at all. I mean, it, it can be, but it's really something quite different. It's a... Uh, um, it's it's really not about sex. I mean, maybe it starts that way, but like any other kind of relationship, it turns into a meeting of the minds, people who depend on each other. Right, right. So, so, so beauty and sexual attraction might be the entree, but what the royal mistresses became is something much, much more. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm still interested in how you two ended up working on largely the same thing. I mean, it's odd enough for two siblings to become professors, right? Well, we grew up in deepest, darkest Minnesota um, in a, it's not really a farming community anymore. It has a, it has a university, Mankato. And, and in any case for me, um, France was just like the, uh, just, just, just the image of, of great culture. And I think that's probably the same for you too, Chris, right? So when we were kids, we would spend hours and hours at the library reading historical fiction. Um, and usually it was about France, you know, um, Catherine de Médicis and, and um, actually Anne Boleyn was a great favorite too. But, but that was how I got interested. And I think that was the same for you, right? It was. I mean, France represented something something elegant and exotic and, and sort of all the things that, that we, we sought in our, in our childhood and necessarily find. And, and yeah, I mean, I think I feel so lucky to be working on this, that I get to go to France and do research. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and maybe I, I think that's what drew us both in. I mean, probably I was following Tracy to a certain extent, but we both, you know, we, we studied French in high school and continued with that. And, and, and yeah, so France represented something to aspire towards. Yeah, you know, um, as a as a farm kid growing up in Coloma, Michigan, this really <laughs> speaks to me. <laughs> just, it's like a just almost imaginary magical place, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. The height of everything good, possibly yeah. the opposite of Coloma, Michigan. Yeah, yeah. I get that. And <laughs> I've been to Mankato, so oh, you understand. <laughs> so. And in fact, to be just as wonderful as I'd always imagined. Yeah, right. I, I, Tracy did a study abroad tour in France when she was 20 and I was 17 and went over to meet her. And I remember arriving at like 10 o'clock at night and we came out of the metro at the Champs-Élysées. And it was just, you know. This, this, is, the, this is the real world. This is where I want to yes. be. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, that my first trip to Paris changed my life. Yeah, yeah. I am um, actually just yesterday booked Talus tickets for my next trip. So. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm jealous. I will never get tired of Paris. Um, no. All right. Okay. So um, I think we. So you have this idea of kind of beauty power, and you want to look at like the idea of how women um, 
exercise power and you land on the mistress. Now, the thing about the mistress is um, the role of mistress. There are a lot of definitions for this word. Um, and as you say in the opening of the book, semi-formalized extraconjugal relationships have always been a fixture of human social life. But you marshal the word mistress in a very specific way for this book. Can you tell me what that is? Uh, do you want to do that or, or should I? Do you want to go ahead and go get ahead, Trace, mm-hmm. take that one? Um, one thing that we, we might start with is that that's not the word that, that they used early on. Um, maîtresse en titre especially isn't an expression as far as I can see. I think it's Choiseul where we found it for the first time, so, so mid-18th century thereabouts. And at that point, it just means whoever your favorite mistress happens to be, that's your maîtresse en titre. And it's not in, at all particular to the French royal mistress. Um, she was the favorite, but not even at the very beginning. That's still, the, the faveur is still a term that's related probably to the 16th century, late 16th, early 17th century. And before that, she's just um, Madame, um, La Dame du Roi. Uh, she doesn't have any particular name. Um, whether there's any conception in particular of a mistress, I mean, just a, uh, the, the, the king's favorite favorite extraconjugal partner, not, not really, especially with Agnès Sorel. I mean, it's, it's just a shock to see um, the king's girlfriend so publicly um, dressed up and given so many so many castles I mean it, it's shocking no one has any idea that 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 could even be that that could be possible she's supposed to remain hidden um, and it's not until Francois premier so so uh, early 16th century so so the, the the 20s and the 30s of the 16th century that that Francois sort of imposes his will and makes her part of the, the part of the royal family. I mean, she has apartments right there next to next to him. So, so um, yeah. So it, it's just that it's something that sort of gradually imposes itself. Right. Yeah. And and mistress. I mean, as Tracy suggests. I mean, you you have mistresses. I mean, there are, kings all have mistresses, but the particular mistress that we are interested in is one that works its way out over time. And by the time you get to the Duc de Choiseul, when, when you start to associate the maîtresse en titre with, with a particular woman who is this politically powerful individual, I mean, that's something that's worked itself out over a couple of centuries in a way. Yes. Yeah, I, I just, just came back from a really wonderful conference in Finland, and a colleague there, a Swedish colleague, told me that in 17th, 18th century ambassadorial um, correspondence, so the French, um, the French um, ambassadors to the Swedish court, you learn that the French ambassadors were always approaching the mistresses of the Swedish kings and acting as if they should be as um, in touch with the king and as, as powerful as back in France. Wasn't the case, apparently, early on. And, and he hypothesizes that it was the, um, the ambassadors who, by treating the Swedish royal mistresses as um, people of importance, actually sort of pushed them into that the same same role. So it was something that was associated in particular with the French royal mistress, this, this power. Interesting. Very, very, uh, that's an interesting way that women are getting power kind of, you know, around the continent. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, these women are super famous, right? Like, I mean, I mean, they were very well known then, but they're very famous now. And kind of, they seem to not have gone away. 
so interested kind of in, in your sources and how you stripped away lore and legend from, from actually getting to these women. So, so that was one of our major tasks, we thought, when we started working on the royal mistresses, is that they're, so much of it is legend and lore, and they're, they're famous, I think, today, in some cases, for reasons that are not true. Um, so, for example, and Tracy can speak to this more than I, because she's written a book on her recently, but Anya Sorel is sort of uncritically um, hailed as the first French official royal mistress, right? Um not something that anyone would have called her back in the 15th century. And there's all these these sort of comments and things she did, like a joyous entry into Paris in, in, in 1444 or something like that, that does not appear in the sources. And as we looked back, you know, one of the things we tried to do is to, to look at the analysis of these mistresses in the sources of the 19th and 20th century and then try to trace back and find original sources that, that actually... Um, were the source of these anecdotes. And in a lot of cases, you find that they, that doesn't exist. So so they are famous and they were famous at the time as well. Um, but the legends were embroidered upon and um, took on a life of their own in a sense. And so. I, I think another important thing is just that, that the tradition of the French royal mistress is something that's discursive. It's created in the 19th century. I mean, it's built on reality. I mean, the women existed. They were known. They, they were understood by ambassadors to be important. Um, ambassador instructions are always to go and speak second of all to the royal mistress. I mean, you talk first of all to the queen, if you can, and then to the mistress. So it's not as if it was a, a fiction of the 19th century, but you see the genealogy um, starting to be developed in the 19th century. Earlier than that, French writers and historians are interested in royal mistresses more generally, but they kind of narrow down into an actual tradition that they describe as particularly French in the 19th century. And that's the, the tradition that we have today. And those start with Agnès Sorel. Okay. Um, so what kind of sources are you using to, like, to get at them now? So the sources change over time. I mean, for the period that Tracy works on, which is the earliest period, there's very little for Anya Sorel, for example. And, and you know, by the time you get to, say, the court of Louis XIV, um, you have ambassadors' reports, um, which are, are one of our major sources. You have memoirs, um, people who are court observers like uh, Bussy Rabetin and Madame de Sévigny write about the mistresses and who's up and who's down and, and, and you know, um, whether Montespan is still as powerful as she was or whether she's on her way, her way out. So you get, you get the gossip, you get the commentary from them. Um, the, the, you find some stuff in newspapers. There's not very much because they're very careful about how they will talk about these women at that Point. By the time you get to the 18th century as well, you have you have these very critical attacks, the, the libelle um, in the French context, especially when it comes to Madame Dubarry, um, where you get this sort of scurrilous literature that talks about them, which of course is not true in most cases, but certainly gives you some insight as to how people thought about mistresses. Going back to Anya Sorel, I mean, what Tracy was looking at were mainly chronicles. Chronicles, um, right. Yeah. And then you've got some accounts, um, but as for narrative sources, it's just the chronicles. That's really all, all we have. Uh, if only we had ambassadors' letters from that period. Um, and it's funny because um, Anya Sorel's uh, cousin, Antoinette de Menelay, 
who is said to have become the king's mistress after Añez's death, although I'm not actually sure that she was really his mistress. Um, I, I won't go into detail about why, but um, I'm not at all sure that that was the case. But in any case, um, by the time you get to her, you've got some ambassador reports, and they say that she was very powerful, but she was married to a favorite, a male favorite of the king. And so that's not, that pairing is really quite common. You've got the, the male favorite and then his wife, and they'll be very, very powerful. Um, and it's just kind of been assumed that Antoinette was 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 his mistress. But um, earlier than that, so the first royal mistress, all you have are a few chronicles. You really don't have many sources at all. Hmm. That, so, so, that's interesting, right? It's the later creation in a sense. I mean, what you do have, and, and this is beginning with Anya Sorel, is you have visual representations of them, right? And so so there's the famous painting of, of Anya Sorel as the lactating virgin that Tracy analyzes. And then, you know, with with the mistresses of Francois the first, you have an effort to to sort of create this iconography. I mean, Diane de Poitiers in particular. Yeah, yeah although the, the, the first really powerful royal mistress, the Duchesse d'Etampes, has just one portrait, um, just, just one one portrait. And it, it, it's strange. I mean, one would think that she would have all kinds of iconography. Maybe she did at the time, but there's only this one portrait that, re- that remains, which is why I assume she's not as well known as later mistresses. If you don't have the visual then you, I mean, Agnes has that that fabulous um, that, that fabulous diptych, which is supposed to be her face. Um, and after that, like you said, Diane de Poitiers, you've got um, things that may or may not represent her, but people think they do. So, so she's very well known. But um, poor Duchesse d'Etampes, I mean, Google her and you find um, like nowhere near the number of hits that you find for the other more famous mistresses. Yeah, I mean, by the time you get to Madame de Pompadour, I mean, she has learned very skillfully how to use use portraiture to to create an image of herself and also uses portraiture to very skillfully represent her shift from from the king's mistress to his advisor and best friend and so so they're they've become very skilled in how they manipulate that kind of iconography as time goes on yeah and this really does follow this idea that it's discursive of course we don't have Anya Soriel what we're going to have for Pompadour because she's not that important, right the, the role hasn't been created yet Okay, so but let, let, let's talk about Agnes. Uh, who is she and how is she the beginning of a tradition? How is she the beginning of a tradition? Um, she, she, let's see, I'm, uh, what I, I would say that, that before Agnes, there were mistresses. We even have the names of a couple of them, but no one has ever heard of them. Um, you, you can find their names if you go digging. But, but the king and the queen are the royal pair and and uncontested. And so with Agnès Sorel, you have a, a real shock to the French system. I mean, she's um, she's not at all well seen by the few chroniclers who mention her. Um, one, one mentions her as someone who brought good to the kingdom because she was able to introduce the king to all kinds of, of men who, who assisted him in good ways. But in general, she's just not well looked upon at all by um, by the chroniclers. I mean, which I guess is what you would expect. I mean, these are people who um, often they're they're people of the church, so they wouldn't wouldn't look kindly on her. Um, why did this happen? That, that, that's something that I've 
pondered for a long time. Um, I think that it has to do with the personality of the king, just as I think that Francois Premier and the Duchesse des Temps I think that, that that pairing has to do with his personality. So I think the individual, Charles VII, Charles VII as in the Joan of Arc king, so um, Charles VII reigning the mid-15th century, um, he was very dependent on his mother-in-law, so Yolande of, Or- of Aragon, um, depended on her for his for his kingship. I mean, he he was um, his his um, ascent was not at all sure. So he um, was um, very grateful to his married family for helping him take the throne. Um, she died in 1442, and. That's about the time that Añez is introduced to him. And we don't really, it's all sort of lost in the mists of time, how they actually were introduced and when when exactly they were introduced. But she starts to appear about 1443, 1444. So it may have just been that he was open to taking advice from women and and appreciated a woman's, a woman's counsel. Um, in any case, we don't really know um, just how politically influential she was. I mean, there's some depositions that indicate that she was quite powerful because people complain about her having the king under her control. So that may or may not be true. But I think that it was actually just that the, the Charles appreciated women, that, that he would listen to women, that it was possible for him to do this. I mean, he's the king, so he can give um, he can give um, gifts to whoever he wants to, to give them to. Um, and so he just kind of brought her into into his circle, uh, and 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 she stayed there until she died. Um, she, she she died in 1450 of, of of a massive overdose of mercury, and nobody knows how she ingested that. You know whether it was accidental. Um, the the um, the forensic specialist who recently examined her remains, so, so 2005, 2006, has said that it would be impossible to take that much mercury by accident, and just just too much to to um, show up in the in the amounts that it does in in the hair of her. She, there's hair from her underarms, for example, they discovered among her remains, tested that. And he says it's impossible that she could have died just by accidentally ingesting that much mercury. But 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 nobody knows what, what happened. But for six or seven years she was at his side living in um in luxury and um how that happened, I guess it's because the king could do whatever he wanted and it was uh, quite a surprise to the people that uh, surrounded him. Wow, that's such an amazing way to go about getting and losing power. Yeah, 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 you almost, if she was murdered, um, if someone did that to her deliberately, you would have to say she was awfully powerful. Otherwise, why bother to to go to all the trouble of, of sneaking in somehow and, and killing her in that way? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so then we have Diane de Poitiers, who is kind of the epitome of the French royal mistress. What makes her this role? Like, how does she earn this? Like, what makes her so? Well, um, maybe we should say, first of all, um, the Duchesse d'Etampes, who was um, at, at court at the same time as Diane de Poitiers. So I think that the, that the fact that, that um, the Duchesse d'Etampes sort of created this role um, and 
And then Chris mentioned the iconography associated with, with the Duchesse des Temps. I mean, I said that there's just one portrait of her, but, but Fontainebleau is, um, is decorated with images that could be read as her, as, as illustrations of her relationship with, with the king, especially what was her, uh, her, her, um, her own room was decorated with, with pictures from the life of Alexander. And in the Alexander pictures, there are pictures of Alexander with his mistress. So one could have read them that way in sort of a private audience the people who would have been surrounding her. So that the, the concept then existed. And Henry the Henry the Second um, was with Dion early on, whether as a mistress, it's not at all clear. I mean, because some of the ambassadors writing about them say that that they weren't actually involved in that way, that that she was just his 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 counselor. Um, and other people say that they were involved in that way and make fun of her for being so much older than he was. So it, it, it's hard to say, but but I think that that, that relationship was kind of a natural because um, uh, Francis I dies in 1547 and Henry then ascends the throne and with him comes Diane de Poitiers. So it's as if the mistress, the Duchesse d'Etampes is chased away and then immediately replaced with Diane de Poitiers. So it's as if now we've got a sort of uh, an expectation that, that you might have a, a royal mistress right there at the, the head of your counselors. Yeah, okay, so a role having been created must be filled. Exactly, yeah, or, or at least that it's there and can be filled because it's, it's not always filled. Depends on the personality of the king, but at least that, that it's there and, and, and sort of latent. And if the right woman comes along and has sufficient personality, because there are mistresses who aren't terribly powerful also, but, but the ones that actually have the personality and the king who is willing to, um, to listen to a woman, then, then you've, got the, the, you've got the job. Yeah, one imagines the personality and the ambition as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is what you can't really get at. It's hard to get at the personality of a person, and yet it makes so much difference. I mean, as we all know from people in public life, it matters so much what the what the person is like, how much charisma they have. And... Right, that like, you know, the, the things you can't really nail. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, guys. Okay, so... Um, so Diane de Poitiers, though, she's in, she's in Fontainebleau. She has this, like, aura around her, yes? Something special about her. Must have had something special about her because she's also described as being old and unattractive. Um, so someone sees that. I mean, who knows what people... I, I think that, that, that it, people may have looked more at uh, clothing than at faces in the 16th century. I think that that was maybe more visible, more obvious. I mean, you, you weren't able to focus in on the face unless you were quite close to somebody who didn't have, have um, photography. Um, but she had to have been very charismatic to have um, garnered the sort of... Um, sort of praise that she did. I mean, the sort of awe and, and sometimes bewilderment, but how on earth is he with this older woman? But, um, but also she, she was um, described as this, this like unnaturally beautiful for a person of her age. Okay. So then there's this considerable gap post-Yon. Post um, why is there no new royal mistress? Um, the, 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 the people, right? The, the, um, yeah, yeah, Chris, go ahead. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, so so um, Henry II is followed by his three sons, and in, in, I mean, 
in his first his first son Francis Francis II only sits on the throne for a couple of years, and his wife is Mary Queen of Scots. And so so he already had a powerful wife and was quite young. And so so, but then his brother Charles X took over and was also very young. He was far more under the control of his mother. Right. So, so you have a very powerful regent in Catherine de Medici mm-hmm. and she will also have a similar influence over her, um, the, the next king, Henry III, also her son, um, who has mistresses, but is, is not hold the same kind of role. And so, so one of the things that we noticed doing this research is there never seems to be a powerful mistress and a powerful regent um, queen you know, queen mother at the same time. Um, so that's the case um, with the sons of Catherine de Medici. And not surprisingly, it's when her her son-in-law becomes king, um, Henry IV, that suddenly you do have the emergence of another powerful mistress. Yeah. So. Yeah. And then another thing we could say is that you don't have powerful queens anymore. I mean, earlier there were powerful queens, but the queen is just no longer the, the, the center of political life. Um, as of Eleanor of Austria, I mean, it's Claude of France. So, sorry, I should have said um, this is the, the wives, the, the, the queens of, of Francis I. So, so Claude is she's her her stories are being revised at the moment and so maybe we'll decide that she was a little more more present than people have thought in the past but uh she doesn't seem to have been um very influential politically speaking um and then his second wife eleanor of austria the sister of charles v his great enemy the, the holy roman emperor um i guess it's not really surprising that his his wife then would have been his enemy as well. So I didn't state that very well. So so Charles the fifth and the, the the Holy Roman Emperor is an inveterate enemy of of Francis the first and Henry the eighth as well. Sort of a, a weird trio there, always sort of ganging up against each other. But the sister of Charles the fifth becomes Francis the first second queen, and he just doesn't treat her very well. Um, I assume because of the the um, enmity between him and Charles V. And as of that point, you really don't have a queen again who's very powerful. Um, Henry II's Catherine de Medicis maybe, but only before he becomes king. I mean, she serves as regent, or sorry, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, sorry. About that. During the rule of her sons, I mean, yeah, so, so yeah. when Hen- I mean, Henry is under the control of Diane de, de, de Poitiers, right? But, yeah, um, yeah right, right. and it's only after his death that that, that Catherine becomes very powerful, and and yeah, she 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 has a, a a very important role in the the reigns of of Francis the Second and Charles the Ninth and Henry the Third. She's very powerful. But only after the death of the king, after of her husband, right? And that's going to be the case with a number of queens in the future. So, so the wife of Henry the Fourth, Marie de Medici, also will be quite powerful during her son's youth, when she serves as regent for for Louis the Thirteenth. And the same will be true of Anne of Austria, who will be very powerful in the youth of Louis the Fourteenth. Um, so again, not in competition with a mistress. Yeah, yeah. Only one woman at a time. Right, like one powerful woman, one decorative woman. (laughs) It's fascinating. Okay. So let's let's skip forward a little to everyone's favorite, Louis the Fourteenth. No surprise here, he stands out amongst the kings with royal mistresses as well. Um, so he has a first mistress, La Valdière, who keeps when Madame de Montespan joins the fray. Um 
what's going on here? Just tell me the story. Tell us the story. It's so good. So, so Louise de la Valliere was the mistress of his youth. I mean, she was 17 years old when she became his mistress. It was in the early 1660s. It was um, shortly after his marriage to, to Marie-Thérèse, the Infanta of Spain, who was, as far as I can tell, not very bright, not very interesting, not very attractive, um, and not at all. I mean, Louis basically took a deep breath and said, you know, for France and, and, and married her. Um, we'll certainly revise that. I'm sure someone is out there right now revising that, and we're going to learn that she wasn't that very powerful and beautiful. Part. That's that's going to be a heavy lift, is all I can say. So, so Louise de La Valliere becomes his mistress, but it's at the time that his mother is still alive and still at court and still has a great deal of influence over him. And Louise de Valliere is perfect under these circumstances because she's willing to stay in the background. You know, the impressions you get of her from from the reports of ambassadors and court observers is that she's she's pretty, she's she's blonde, she's, you know, soft spoken and quiet. She doesn't make demands. She she just sort of stares at him adoringly and is willing to sort of hang out in the background. And that's fine when he's in his early 20s. And I mean, this is one thing I think we have to keep in mind, you know, with these courts sometimes is it's a bunch of teenagers, you know, running all over the place, controlling the country. I mean, Louis XIV should have been playing video games and instead, you know, he's in control of armies and running a country. Um, so so that's fine for a while. And especially as um, Anne of Austria succumbs to breast cancer, um, it's particularly soothing for Louis to have this this quiet mistress in the background. However, you know, as he gets a little bit more mature, he wants somebody who's more interesting. He wants somebody who is more magnificent. And that is about the time that Madame de Montespan comes along. Um, Montespan was actually originally a friend of Louise de la Valliere. And Louise la Valliere would invite um, Montespan to come to their chambers and hang out with them because she, her, her wit was so sparkling and, and, and it kept the king entertained. And so she didn't seem to have thought that this might turn into a problem down the line. So by, by 1960, or sorry, 1666, 1667, you start to see, you know, in, in correspondence um, and, and in commentary that the king's attention appears to be turning away from La Valliere to Montespan, that she is embedding herself at court. And it's in particular during um, a military campaign that they go on in 1667. The king, when he went on military campaign, would take a whole coterie of women along with him who would be staying in tents and, and you know, sort of setting up as he went off and would fight battles and apparently come back and hang out at night with them. Um, so it was during this military campaign that it became quite clear that Montespan had replaced La Valliere. But there is a complication, and that is that the Marquise de Montespan is married. And her husband is not particularly willing to be complacent about this. And so, so it serves Louis' purposes to keep La Valliere on as his sort of primary mistress and to keep Montespan slightly in the background, even though everybody at court, it's an open secret, as we call it, that, that Montespan has, in fact, replaced La Valliere in his heart. And this drama continues for the next seven years. Um, La Valliere sort of sadly and watching Louis drift away from her, um, watching her rival embed herself at court. Um, La Valliere several times runs away to a convent, um, it, overcome by, by religious scruples, but clearly also by, you know, unhappiness that she's in this horrible position. And that 
continues until 1674 when Lavalliere, in fact, officially becomes a Carmelite nun. She leaves the court permanently. She takes her leave in a very dramatic fashion. She begs pardon of the queen. She, she, it's, it, it's a, a huge event at court. And then she's off to the convent. At this point, Montespan has managed to secure an official separation from her husband. So he's no longer really a problem and she can take her position at court. But there's still the problem that she's married and that this is unseemly. And in 1675, um, Louis' confessor actually persuades him to briefly send Montespan away from court because of the the scandal attached to this sinfulness. Um, She's back within a year. (laughs) They can't stay away from each other. And so she maintains her position really until about 1680, when for various reasons, their relationship starts to um, crumble is too strong, but, but he, his interests turn elsewhere. So. Okay. I love this idea that like, there's a Royal mistress. Everyone knows there's a Royal mistress. There's a queen. There's also many other people we assume with whom the King enjoys some carnal commerce, but, but the, the marriage of this, this marriage of the Royal mistress to someone else, that's problematic. Like there's some, some man who's being dishonored here, who's being stepped on, and that is a problem. It is an interesting world to like sort out, right? <laughs> it is. And it's also interesting because it's a problem for Montesquieu to be married. And yet, by the 18th century, the royal mistress has to be married. Well, and you before, know, she also, she was also married. Agnès was the only mistress of, of substance who was not married. Um, after that, uh, the king's always married the mistress. I think to sort of give plausible deniability to the relationship, I and mean, then she has has a status, and she has a reason to be there, and someone to take care of. Yeah. I mean, to be presented at court, to have title, you need a husband, right? And, and you, yeah, you need, you need sort of plausible deniability or, or a fiction as to why you're there. And, uh, and something to do with the children. Right. Yeah. Well, that too. Well, that, at, although with, with the children of Montespan, Louis actually legitimates a number of them and tries to put them in line to the succession mm-hmm. when he's worried about the fact that he may not have um, he may not have an heir to the throne. Um, that's overturned as soon as he dies. But but he, he does. In fact, there is a way that the king can actually claim um, these children as his own without naming the mother, which seems like a stretch. But yeah, that astounding. I found I found my own records where it lists the father and says mother unknown. Yeah, yeah. I, I know enough about childbirth to know even in the 16th century, <laughs> it was not possible. <laughs> you know, these these fictions are so interesting. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 I mean, in part, once again, to maintain that sort of open secret that we talk about, that, that everybody knows who the mistress is, but you still, it still needs to, one still needs to act as if all is honorable in the words yeah, of yeah, yeah. the mistress. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, and then, so, like, how would, what would we say that, what's the royal, what is the role of the royal mistress? Who is she by the death of Louis XIV? Um, by the death of Louis XIV, there is an assumption that kings will have a mistress. I mean, that she has become very much embedded in court. And you see this once again in the 
observations of people like B.C. Rabatan and his correspondence and, and, and Sevigny, that they sort of watch it like a game. Who's up? Who's down? Is somebody going to replace, you know, the official mistress at this point? And, and they're, even if they're not using the term metacentistre so much, even if it's not this if it's not couched in quite those words, it's there's still a very clear sense that there is always going to be a woman who is the the chief mistress at the court. And, and she's associated with Agnes Sorel too by that point. So by, by Louis the Fourteenth, they actually refer to her to, to his mistresses as compared compared either favorably or unfavorably to Agnès Sorel. So so they're aware of the fact that that other kings have had mistresses, and they, in fact, Henry the Fourth is already talking about Gabrielle. Well, actually, he doesn't refer to Gabrielle in this way in particular, but his mistresses as versions of Agnès Sorel because they um uh, they they made him more noble or so more and more brilliant. Right, right. And there is reference to that. Um, I think Busey Rabatin, in fact, makes a comment that, that at least Louis is using, or, you know, he's leaving her to go off and fight where unlike, unlike Charles VII, who was kept from doing so by Anne, the beautiful Agnes it's or something. Yes, that he wouldn't leave her side. So, so, so they right. talk about the other mistresses. They're, they're aware that there's this tradition. Right. But, you know, there's also the fact, and something we talk about in the book is the fact that Louis has the most theatrical court um, in in history, right? Um, literally theatrical and also, you know, sort of figuratively, but, but they would perform ballets, they would perform operas, and the king himself performed in a lot of these um these these ballets in his in his youth. And Montespan and Louise de la Valliere were also you know, members of these these um, productions. And so there is this very theatrical element which allows for the mistress to sort of carve out this position in this this um, in this court, which is set up for display at this point very much. And the mistress has also, under Louis the Fourteenth, become a oh a model for French goods. I mean, they're they're recognized for their beauty and for their their fashion sense, Montespan in particular very much represents the the budding fashion um, sense of France, you know, that, that she is recognized as somebody who promotes French luxury goods in that way. And that will be the case with future mistresses as well, that they they um, they, they are French and they they um, are they represent the glory of the court in that way. Okay. Yeah. So created a space, carved it out, made it powerful, made it beautiful. Right made it fashionable and then performed it. Right. Well, and, and become the, the avatars of French culture, right? So not only fashion, but, but Montespan is also very well known as a patron of the arts, um, a patron of literature, um, of architecture. And so in that way, the mistress's role is expanding in mm-hmm. a sense, and, and that will achieve fruition, I think, under Pompadour. So. All right. Let's talk about Pompadour and Dubai. And so we see a new sort of situation of at court here. What do they represent? So they represent, um, in the view of some dyspeptic commentators from the 19th century, a degradation of the position of the royal mistress. That 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 you know neither Pompadour nor nor Dubarry in the first instant has any real reason to be at court because. Um, Madame de Pompadour, whose original name was Jeanne-Antoinette Poisson, um, which caused great merriment since her name translates as fish, um, she was from the, the financial bourgeoisie of Paris. So she was not a noblewoman. Um, and she was, you know, well-connected. She was involved in salon society. She was well-educated. Um, there's sort of a whiff of scandal attached to her because there's some question about her her 
parentage, um, who her father was. But, you know, she was from a very different social milieu. She meets Louis in 1744 in the countryside. Um, there's, you know, various stories about how they actually met, which once, once again drew on the legend of Anya Sorel. Um, and she comes to court by 1744. She's educated into what she will have to do at Versailles by the Abbey de Bernice. And, you know, she becomes the most powerful woman at court. Um, and she really does draw on the genealogy. She looks back to Madame de Maintenon, who was um, Louis XIV's last mistress and his morganatic wife. Um, the marriage was always kept secret, but but she was also his most powerful political advisor. And that's something that, that, that Pompadour looks back to, how she can become this friend and political advisor to the king. And she also is a protector of philosophes. She's a patron of architecture. She's a patron of literature, a patron of the arts. And so she really explores all those elements of the, the royal mistress's possibilities in important ways. But it is as political advisor that she becomes most important. Um, Pompadour also represents the extent to which sex is somewhat incidental to the position of royal mistress, because while it's clear that she and Louis had a sexual relationship for about the first five years of their relationship, she was clearly not interested in that part of their relationship, very clearly. And by 1750, their sexual relationship had clearly ended, and she was sort of shifting into this position of the king's best friend. And it's at that point she becomes his political advisor. Louis the 15th did not like the tasks associated with kingship very much. So Pompadour famously took some of that burden off him. She would meet with ambassadors and and petitioners from court every morning during her toilette. So she's putting on makeup. There would be a, a, a line of people waiting to talk to her um, in hopes of getting access to the king's ear via Pompadour. So Fascinating. Okay. And then Madame de Barry. So Madame Dubarry represents, once again, in the view of this dyspeptic commentator, a further degradation of the role of royal mistress because she had been a courtesan. I mean, she had been a a, a, a member of the demimonde, essentially. Um, she had, her, her parentage was even more problematic. Her mother was a, a, a fishmonger, I believe it was, and her, her, her father, possibly a monk, um, they're not quite sure of that. Um, so she was she was uh, a high class prostitute in her her teen years. Um, she became connected to um, Monsieur de Dubarry, um, who sort of trained her. They say in the the arts of love and got her connected in sort of noble circles and brought her arranged to bring her to the attention of the king. Okay, this was after the death of Pompadour. It was also after the death of his wife. So there was no longer a queen at court to sort of get in the way. Um, getting Dubarry to court is quite a challenge because she has absolutely no reason to be there. She has to get married first. And so her her um, patron Dubarry arranges for her to marry his brother, the Comte Dubarry, which, so she's got her title now. She can come to court. The king bribes um, a, a noble woman to present her at court. So then that allows her to sort of take up, take up residence there. Um, she was probably not particularly interested in politics and political intriguing in the way that Pompadour was. However, by this point, everybody assumes that the mistress is the conduit to the king's attention and is interested in politics. And so immediately 
you know, courtiers who are vying for power try to get her attention and try to get her um, on their side, um, which they are able to do because the Duc de Choiseul, who is the chief minister at court, does not like Dubarry and does everything he can to undercut her. So she's willing to ally with the Duc d'Aguillon and the, the Duc de Richelieu um, in opposition to um, Choiseul and, in fact, brings him down and her... Her partisans are then established in power until the death of Louis the the fifteenth. So, so she really does represent this this shift in a sense in in who the royal, where the king draws his his mistresses from. She also was apparently stunningly beautiful, um, more so than Pompadour, if you leave the accounts, I mean, and the degree of enthusiasm on the, the part of the observers, and also apparently really a nice person. I mean, Pompadour was not. Pompadour, Pompadour would kill you if you did the wrong thing. Um, Dubarry was very forgiving, and even when sort of scurrilous um, literature came out about her, um, she was apparently the first to laugh at it and really, um, I mean, you read this again and again that she was a nice person. So. Yeah, could I just throw one little thing in there on, on the last two? Um, they were both presented at court because they weren't there already. They, they had to come to court and then they had to be officially presented. And I think that that accounts for some mysterious thing that I keep reading about Agnès Sorel. And you read over and over again that Agnès Sorel was the first official royal mistress, which of course she wasn't. There was nothing official about her position at all, but also that, that she was presented at court as the royal mistress. And I think that that draws on this later presentation. Um, normally the mistresses didn't have to be presented because they were already at court. They already had a reason to be there. Um, but but, um, but uh, Pompadour and Dubarry had to be presented. And so I'm thinking that maybe it was reading that that made people project back onto. So, so historians of, of the 19th, 20th century looking at that would then project that back onto Agnès Sorel, because I don't know where this idea that she was presented at court as the royal mistress came from. Not that, that either Pompadour or Dubarry was presented as the royal mistress. They were presented as themselves. But um, there's this sort of persistent myth about Agnès that she was somehow official, whatever whatever that would mean. But right, like somehow she she represents the beginning of this trend. So there must be there must have been a ceremony. Ceremony, of course, that had to happen to make that happen. On the contrary, on the contrary, nobody would say this is the royal mistress. People would right. whisper that, but but nobody would 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 make an announcement at court that this was the royal mistress. Those, those 19th century historians have made our lives so hard and so distorted <laughs> yeah. our, our view yeah. of the But role. they also shifted through all of those documents. They, they, they're, yeah, they, they, yeah, they, they made, made the, the field possible by going through the documents because so many of them have disappeared in the meantime. I mean, they copied things that then in the movings from one museum to the next or from one library to the next. Liars or mice eating them or whatever. Right, you know, you've, and you've touched documents and felt them fall apart in your hands. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah no, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and oh, God love them that there's some German who's written down everything that ever happened. That's exactly my impression. There's nothing new that some German didn't say back in the 19th century. It's so true. God love them. But yeah, they also, I mean, they gave us the Renaissance. So I don't know. You know. Yeah, the 19th century, we're still, we're going to work a long time to get over the 19th century in, in every way. That's sort of our next job. Or we're, we're thinking 
I'm doing another book in the future where we sort of look at at um, how the 19th century historians created or inserted women into the sort of nationalist um, story of France, in a sense, how women, these women like Agnès Sorel and, and mistresses, and then the women I'm working on now, the, the Mavilleux from the, 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 the directory period, how they become integrated into that story and a symbol of France and, and French national identity. Yeah, so, so to this very day, you have these debates over, or, over French gallantry. Is, is, it, is there such a thing as gallantry? I mean, should we consider that a value or should we become American feminists? Or, you know, they, they discuss this endlessly on, on French radio. French oh, sure. Right, that's, that's the story of second wave feminism on some level, right? Or third wave feminism, I suppose. Are we, how, how important is French feminism to our concept of ourselves? Right, right. Yeah. Well, and, and women's relationship with men, and and they're they're so obsessed with that 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 the French know how to do this in a way so much better than than Anglo Americans. That and it and it traces back to the soft power of these these women and how they how they can operate behind the scenes without without you know upsetting gender hierarchies in a sense. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Just just last week, I was listening to another podcast. I've forgotten which one it is. There's sort of a group of people who are always intoning on this, but but just shouting. And now American feminists are trying to get rid of the natural division between men and women. And this is kind, kind of shocking. I mean, I, I, how do we, I have no idea whether there is a natural division between men or women, but neither do they. They have no idea whether there actually is or not. And so it's, it's, it's a little late to be shocked about that idea. But. You, you would think so, since we've been talking about it since the eighties, <laughs> right? You know, I mean, and how much is this nineteenth-century? How much is this? We're just responsible for our understanding of soft power throughout history, you know. And I have stood in front of a classroom and talked about women gaining power through these illegitimate means. Yeah. Well, power versus power versus authority, right? That you can exercise power in any number of ways, but it doesn't give you authority. You know, power that's perceived as legitimate, and that's you know, and that's a problem with the mistresses. Is everybody recognizes that they have power, um, but it's not power that in ears in them. It's power that they have via their access. You know, as a conduit, um, and and that's something that, you know the French continue to argue that, oh, women are, are all powerful because they, they, their levers are the levers of the heart, right? And without recognizing that without authority, that power is ephemeral. And so maybe all power is. <laughs> yeah, maybe all power is. Yeah. That's fascinating. Well, actually, uh, my last question and how I'd like to close this out is discussing like how poor Marie Antoinette gets this all so wrong. Oh, I know. Marie, Marie Antoinette would have been much better off had Louis XVI actually had a mistress because, you know, she comes to France and, and she and Louis both wanted sort of a companionate marriage. I mean, that was something that they both were working towards and that reflects 18th century trends in all kinds of ways. But the problem was that Marie Antoinette represented in the eyes of the French public and the court the worst of both the mistress and the wife, right? So like all French wives, she is a foreigner. And 
in particular, she's Austrian. And the Austrians had been France's enemies since time immemorial and had only become their friends because of the renversement des alliances, the, the, the reversal of alliances in, in 1756, just in time to fight the Seven Years' War, which is a catastrophe for the French. So, so she's associated with this, this alliance with the hated Austrians, right? And then she is also a spendthrift. She she is perceived as somebody who who is is going through money like water. That she doesn't care about the French people, and so in that way, very much associated with Dubarry, who was also criticized for her, you know, her um, spending and lo- love of luxury and 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 lack of care for what the French were suffering um, at that point. And so so. Marie Antoinette would have been better off had there been a mistress to sort of focus the nation's hatreds in a way, but instead she becomes in every way the symbol of of female power run amok, in a sense, on every level. And that will not serve her well in the long run, as we know. And so no. Yeah, um, no, no spoiler there, but and, and you just you wonder to what extent it was a question of just not reading the room correctly and projecting the wrong image or mm-hmm. was it not being able to control her image or was it just a set of obstacles that nobody could have overcome? Because mm-hmm. I think people aren't wrong to say that she spent a lot of money. I mean, that, that, that was certainly true and it wasn't the time to be doing that. Um, but whether... She, anyone could have managed that role. I'm not not sure about that. I mean, the, the Austrian problem was just enormous. I mean, Eleanor of Austria, the the the, the queen of François Premier, already the, the sister of the emperor, so an enemy just by her very existence, an enemy in that same way. Um, can anyone control a position like that? I don't. I don't know. Yeah, it's really it is hard. I mean, although people welcomed her when she first came, although. You know, it's when she was a little girl, but but yeah, it's it's it is hard to know. I mean, it was I mean, obviously, not very many people navigated that French Revolution very well in the early phases. Yeah, so. absolutely, very few people came out of that on top. Actually, yeah. So so it's it's hard to know, but um, but it is really a tragic case. I mean, I think she was. I mean, I don't know if anybody could have done it. She perhaps did it more badly than some. Sure. So, and you know, and and poor Dubarry follows her to the guillotine. You know, two months later. And so, um, and, you know, when we think about, but I just, when thinking about her in this context, and it's a really smart way to end the book, by the way, I love it. Um, because, you know, this, like what, what the role of like how women can exercise power, thinking about her in this context of these other women, um, I, you know, she just, I don't know that she had a place, right? It doesn't feel like she had a place for her idea of queenship. Well, and, you know, and she wanted to be the king's political advisor too. But the problem is she couldn't be trusted in that position because the idea was that she would be supporting the interests of her family. And so, so she, I think, yeah, she, there wasn't a place for her. What could she have done? Um, that would have but, made but people also happy. her ideas were definitely not the right ideas for the moment. I mean, she was very conservative. So once again, the question is whether she was particularly bad in the role or whether there was it was impossible to to manage the role. Yeah. I mean, and then the foreign thing on top of it, at least when all the queens are foreign, and the mistresses are French. This idea that at least they're rooting for the home team. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. Well, well, I have taken up quite enough of your time. 
But thank you so much for this delightful uh, conversation and this really delightful book. And uh, I can't, you know, you've heard listeners, you've heard a good deal of why you should read it. Uh, let me also tell you, it's it's a delightful read. There's really good stories. There's uh, these characters are come to life in a wonderful way. You do a great job of really introducing these women to us. So it is absolutely worth reading as well. And uh, thanks so much for taking your time to talk to me. About it. Thank you. This was just thank such a pleasure. Actually, yeah, it was really wonderful. Yes. Thanks.